0: You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. We're excited tonight to have a conversation, a one-on-one conversation with a senator who's here with me this evening. Before I introduce her in, this show is about a position um, in the state of Washington, the insurance commissioner role that is an elected position that I think many of us don't know of or know about or what that, the role of that person is. I know i haven't heard anything of it in many years and so i'm excited to be able to talk about this with you with the community this evening because this is really important for us as a community to make sure we understand what is actually happening in the insurance industry here in washington state i'm excited to introduce senator patty cooterer she's here with me this evening Um, patty cooter is out of the 48th district she is uh the 48th is bellevue kirkland redmond she has been a phenomenal senator advocating in the legislature on our behalf on a lot of issues and so Uh, it is my honor to introduce senator patty cooter here with me this evening on welcome to heartbeat senator cooter
1: thank you so much cindy it's always a delight to be with you
0: (laughs) you've been on a few times with me now i
1: have and enjoyed it every time
0: (laughs) i'm i was so excited to hear that you are running for this commissioner and so i'd love for you to talk to our audience about um why are you running what what has prompted you you're an accomplished senator so you've done a lot What's why are you doing this
1: a really great question Um, and I get asked that all the time I'm sure you would never believe that because you know It really is one of those positions that people's eyes glaze over when they hear it insurance commissioner It's like who knew you know, and who knew I had to vote for it, right? But the reality is um, it's a very important uh, position and I Actually became very interested in this position about five years ago I was working on a bill dealing with um, how do we, how do cre- how do we create universal health care. I am um, uh, a firm believer in that, and that goes back even farther. I'll tell you a little bit about that. But I started looking at it, and I was working on this bill, and staff said to me, "You know, Senator Cooter, um, this really should go through the insurance commissioner's office." And I went, "Hmm." I think I want that job. So that kind of started it about five years ago. And um, uh, and even before that, in terms of my uh, interest in universal health care, that goes back 30 years ago with the birth of my daughter, uh, Emily. And uh, Emily was what they called a micro preemie. She was uh, one pound, 13 ounces at birth. She was actually stillborn. This is what the doctor, I'll never forget him, when I came out of the anesthesia, saying to me, uh, she was stillborn, we revived her, um, and she's in an incubator. And when I went to see her, all one pound, 13 ounces of her, um, hooked up to all this machinery, including a tube down her throat that looked like it weighed more than she did, uh, I, I knew this was something I wasn't going to be able to kiss and make better. Uh, and she spent five months in, in the hospital, she had three surgeries while she was there, and during that time, I mean, I, I did the vigil as any mother would do and or could do. I was fortunate that I could do that, and um, you know, there were a couple times when the insurance company said, uh, "We're not going to pay for that procedure because even though the doctors say your daughter needs it, we think it's experimental." And as a lawyer, I was able to fight back, and I did, uh, and she got the care she needed. Uh, and when she, I brought her home after five months, there was a letter from the insurance company, um, telling me that my five month old, still very medically fragile baby, uh, had nearly reached her lifetime cap. And that is when a switch went off in my head, um, that we, I really felt like we had a morally bankrupt healthcare system, you know, a for-profit healthcare system that, um, you know, sacrificed care for people for profit. and. I happened to meet a doctor in the hospital who was uh, a pediatric nephrologist who was also a writer, and he wrote extensively about our healthcare system, and he and I became um, very good friends, uh, and he also was very instrumental in helping my daughter find the right care. Um, but that's where I really learned about the problems in our healthcare system and how ours was accidentally formed. There was nothing, you know, logical about it. No other country has followed our example. Uh, and with the insurance commissioner position, that will allow me to focus on healthcare and bringing that to every Washingtonian. And that's really what I see as a vision for this role is to create, um, uh, in a, an approach to universal health care that works for this country. And uh, and I'm determined to make that a reality. As long as I'm above ground, I'm going to be
0: working on universal health care. And, and so I've heard you tell that story before, and I appreciate uh, when you bring up issues like um our our ability to get things approved, the things that actually save our lives have to go through these gross processes of whether it's gonna be approved or not for us to have the care. We'll dig more into specifics around insurance here in just a minute. I do want you to talk about what is the actual role of that commissioner? What is it that you'll do in that seat?
1: yeah very simply, there are two main uh, job duties for the insurance commissioner One is to regulate the insurance industry and that encompasses a lot of things licensing registration reviewing premiums et cetera um, and being a consumer advocate uh, and that's another thing that's a very um, that comes naturally t- to me uh, as an attorney as a trial attorney it's been something I've done my entire career uh, and uh, and I feel that that is a very important uh, duty of the insurance commissioner and
0: one I intend to focus on. What do you think some of the biggest challenges are going to be for you um, when you win that election and get that seat? Love the confidence. <laughs>
1: um, I can tell you that you know this is a little different uh, because there has been uh, a loss of talent at the at the uh, insurance commissioner's office, and my uh, I, my job will be. In addition to doing the regular duties of the commissioner, I'll also be uh, rebuilding uh, the agency and looking for talent and and bringing people back, uh, you know, to to bring the the agency back to to what it was and and even better. I want this position. I want this agency to go beyond what we've done in the past. And and that's not to to say that um, the current commissioner. I think he's done. Uh, a very good job over the years that he's been in office. Um, but I think, you know, the troubles that it have, um, he's encountered in the last few years have been in the news. I don't think it's a secret, uh, that there has been a loss of some very dedicated public, uh, servants, um, who really are instrumental to making the agency operate. I mean, it's a, it's got about 250 employees and, you know, um, about 400 volunteers, I believe, that that work uh, at the agency. And I think it's really important to make sure that um, we take a look at at the work environment and we review policies that are in place and we make sure that everyone, and I mean everyone, including the commissioner, is held uh, accountable for their actions. Um,
0: What is it, um, I'm just going to actually come down a couple of levels and describe, like, what is it, they actually do. So just to hear that there's 250 people working in the industry and maybe the way to talk about that is to talk about the state of insurance here in Washington state so we can understand kind of how they have been positioned and what is it that they're working on.
1: Well they're working on a lot of things because there's different kinds of insurance. I mean that's what we need to understand. It's not just one monolith right. Um, So for example um, in property casualty you're going to be focused on climate change what's happening there. Um, that's a very big issue for our state and that's a very big issue for our insurance. And I think it's a role that the insurance commissioner is gonna have an incredible, incredibly important role in making sure that whatever policies we put in place to make sure that our insurance companies stay solvent, but also that um, there is coverage for consumers when they need it.
0: So property and
1: casualty is car
0: insurance, correct?
1: It's car insurance okay. and homeowner's insurance homeowner's and insurance. what they call umbrella insurance, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Yeah, so there's that aspect. Then there's the health care, and I mm-hmm. talked a little bit about that. And there's an issue with uh, pharmacy benefit managers. I'm really getting into the details now, but uh, this is another um, area that the insurance commissioner plays a very important role on. And uh, I had a bill, actually, to give the insurance commissioner more authority over pharmacy benefit managers and the role that they play in pricing of our drugs and that's really critical, especially for those with chronic illnesses like diabetes or hypertension, chronic hypertension or AIDS, things like that. It's a really important um, piece and it's it's lacking right now is that oversight um, and transparency of how pharmacy benefit managers actually do their drug pricing. Um, and and earn their profit, quite frankly, multi-billion dollar companies there too. We have pet insurance, there's funeral insurance, Um, there's the long-term care trust act, liability, long-term care insurance, which in our state, long-term care insurance is in shambles. And it's in shambles because of the industry itself, not anything that the insurance commissioner's office has done. Uh, And it's why the legislature passed the Long-Term Care Trust Act, to make sure that people have this really important insurance when they need it. Um, And the benefit about the the legislation that we passed is that, more often than not, it's a it's a loved one who's taking care of you um, when you have that long-term disability, and that loved one now who has ta- you know left the the job market to do that is now going to be able to get paid from this insurance, so they are going to be able to s- still have an income, which I think is really important. You don't get that in the private long-term care insurance, um, long-term
0: yeah care. What about um, what about issues like Um, we talk a lot here on the show about equity, right? Health equity. Affordability for health insurance is a significant problem, right? In our communities and, well, in the broader communities too, right? During COVID, um, President Biden dropped a lot of the pricing, uh, at least through the exchange, because we have the Washington Health Exchange, and he pulled it down. But this year, all the pricing went way back up again, and for those of us who sleuth 10Qs and look at profitability reports on these companies, their profits are significant. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to people being making profit, but it is at the expense of the consumers being able to afford quality health care. What are your thoughts and what is your vision about affordability for health care? And can we do something different or better here in Washington state than what we have across the country now?
1: Another great question. Yes, we can do better. Um, and part of that is universal health care. But, but that is universal health care just means everybody has access to it. Um, the affordability piece, you know, we passed uh, Cascade Care. Um, a few years ago, which is the public option. Um, I would like to see that expanded. And I think, you know, I mean, honestly, Cindy, if you think about it, where do you want your tax dollars going, right? Um, For me, I want my tax dollars going to education, public education, I want it going to healthcare, and I want it going to housing. Because I know that those are the best investments that we can make in the greatest asset that we have which is our people. I also know that there are a lot of benefits of doing that. There's actually a rate of return on those investments that they pay us back, essentially, for what we put in. I envision, for healthcare in particular, in terms of, of affordability, I envision um, a standard plan, like with Cascade uh, Care, that is very heavily preventative-based, um, That we are able to leverage and pay detach from employment and pay it through leveraging other funds like Medicare dollars, a payroll tax for those who are working, a health tax on employers. We're going to have to look at it much more uh, deeply than that. But that's where the idea is starting, right? Where we can actually pay for it. But the idea is that we shouldn't um, right now, if you go on the individual exchange, you are an individual. But what if all of those individuals were grouped as a group? Because when I was um, paying for my own insurance, uh, when I was a solo practitioner, you know, my insurance was about 800 a month.
0: That would be my bill. Yes. And then
1: for the same person, you know, same issues, same everything, I win an election and I go to the state and I join their health care and now it's $84 a month. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's power in the numbers. And I think if we were to aggregate all of those individuals and say, yeah, you're on the in, the individual exchange, but you're not alone. And you're the, with all these and, other people who are on the individual exchange.
0: Now. And these are where our small business people are. Yes. Right. So yes. our small businesses, the largest economic engine in the state, can't afford healthcare.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it, and it, and believe me, I think if you were to, to poll businesses and and say, would you like us to detach healthcare from your business? They would say yes, Mm -hmm. because it is uh, an enormous expense and we can do better. We don't, you know, right now we have some companies that are for profit and some that are nonprofit. And maybe what you do is open the pool up to those who are nonprofit.
0: And then there's the whole issue of life insurance, right? <laughs> the life insurance sector, which is uh, predicated on health, you're the state of your health, um, and if you're not in a company that is paying for that, and you have to go out yourself to get it, um, what was going through my mind when you were first talking about your vision for it was, you know, we all describe the consumer describes healthcare as just a system that helps keep us sick. It doesn't focus on solving what you were just referring to as, um, I forgot the term you used, but preventative kind of healthcare, which takes me down the whole path of the whole natural path and how come we can't get coverage and all the kind of things on what's helping us stay better. So I'm babbling without a question here, but my question started off about life insurance, like how do we get access to, and if you think about in brown and black communities, I mean, the the rates of maternal death are higher for black women. Uh, if you think about uh, earning power for brown and black communities, still 53 cents to the dollar. What is it that, what's your view or vision about being able to have access to even life insurance policies without using our our health conditions against us necessarily and particularly over a certain age group. I mean,
1: (laughs) yeah, you know, the interesting thing about it is that, um, everything, you know, that we do essentially what we eat, where we live, Mm -hmm. all of that plays into, you know, our DNA download, all of that plays into our overall health. We can do things to be healthier, um, but you know like what happened with my daughter um that wasn't her that wasn't anything she did it wasn't even anything i did it was, I, it, it was just the number was up right a statistic and um and that happens too mm-hmm. um and i think we have to be looking at health on a continuum and and you know we have to be able to um you know it it has to be holistic Mm -hmm. and in terms of the insurance piece itself i mean you know they have their um underwriters who look at the risk and they have a way of calculating the risk and i don't know that we're going to change that Um, but i think we need to change the conditions under which they look at or how how we are living so that we we don't have um we reduce the potential for those things to mm-hmm. occur, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the investment in, in housing. You know, one of the, the bills that we passed not too long ago, um, it was the Senator Saldana bill that dealt with um, focusing um, revenue in areas, uh, housing areas that are in mixed industrial use. So that where there's more pollution and things like that we're going to focus there and clean that area up because we know that that's related to health health conditions mm-hmm. right and we also know that um, people in lower socioeconomic um, mm-hmm. demographic tend to live in those areas mm-hmm. and so I think we need to start prioritizing everybody and we need to start looking at health very holistically
0: mm-hmm. yeah the whole the holistic approach to health care does, Um, for many of us, I mean, I personally use concierge medicine, right? I pay a doctor every month to have a naturopath, to have access to a doctor that will actually go to bat for me and help me, as opposed to trying to go through the referral process uh, or the gatekeeping or the way that keeps insurance companies from actually paying bills for people. And so when I think about holistic care, and the fact that what you were just talking about—our food that we eat, um, the air that we breathe—like this mm-hmm. is all intertwined together. And so we are being, I mean, I, these are my words, but almost intentionally made sick in order to help keeping profits going for insurance companies because they won't approve the drugs that we need to have to help, and/or um, the thresholds is kind of like credit scores in insurance, right? The thresholds. That have been put in place for most people can't be achieved. And so it, this is a regulated industry. And so, how do you deal with the fact that you go in as a commissioner and you are now you work under a regulated industry which controls how things are done? How will you navigate that and help get at some of these issues we're talking about tonight?
1: Well, once I get in there, and you know, first of all, I'm gonna be meeting with people from the insurance commissioner's office. Um, and And hopefully that includes the commissioner himself to talk about the issues that they're working on and where they're at with things and be able to, you know look at it before, in the event I get in, I can hit the ground running. Um, but I think it's important, um, you know, I guess there's without knowing everything that that's happening there right now, and I don't because I'm not in in that agency. Um, you know, I really wouldn't be able to, to say exactly what I would be doing other than I would be looking over everything, every issue that they have um, active right now, every complaint that has been filed with the insurance commissioner, and I understand there are several, um, I will be looking at those and will be, you know, I'll be meeting with uh, the staff and talking with them in terms of developing a plan and a strategy to move forward—that's that's all I can tell you right now. Without having been in the job and you know experienced it firsthand, um, I just know that um, that we need some change. Uh, and you know, I I'm certainly open to suggestions and I'm open um, to different approaches as long as it gets me to the vision where i where I think we need to go. And like I said, that that heads back to being the consumer advocate. Um, the regulatory piece, I think, is is pretty well in place there right now, um, but there are some uh, other other things we need to be looking at, like the bill I mentioned earlier that I dropped that uh, on on pharmacy benefit managers that I think needs to pass.
0: Did was that presented during legislative session this year? It was, yeah. And it did not pass.
1: No, it got to the Senate floor and, and didn't. Unfortunately, did not get called. Uh, to the floor for a vote. Why is that? You know, uh, that's a tough question to know. Um, was it, I, I really don't know if maybe there wasn't a path forward in the House. I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that it was a very strongly bipartisan bill, and I think it's an excellent bill, and, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get it passed next
0: year. And And what will it do?
1: It'll, it'll put, it'll create a new statute for pharmacy benefit managers and it will put them uh, squarely under the jurisdiction of the insurance commissioner for regulatory purposes, uh, and for investigation purposes. That's the other piece that the insurance commissioner does. It can investigate, um, complaints into, uh, companies and practices. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it would, uh, put some transparency and accountability in place for uh, a part of the, um, pharmaceutical cost chain that really has gone unchecked and it is hurting both consumers and
0: independent pharmacists. And to me, that is not a good situation and it needs to change. And I mean, I don't know the statistics around it, but many people are forced to get their drugs out of the United States because they get drugs from Canada, for example, because they're a fraction of the price as what they are here. So is that what you're getting at when you're talking about the regulation or regulatory um, aspects of controlling the cost of some of these medicines and then follow up to that? What about the fact that, or what are your thoughts about uh, the high rates of cancer, the high rates of breast cancer. They, I just saw something come out today about, you know, they're now encouraging women to get, uh, breast cancer checks at 40 years old. And, and to be candid, you know this, many people know I battled breast cancer myself a few years ago. Uh, and when sitting in the infusion room, I was shocked because the people what I my mental was that it was going to be a room full of older people. What was sitting in those chairs were 30 year olds, 30 year olds, because I asked the nurse, WTF, I just said, what is happening? How, How do we have these young women in here? And what are we doing about it? And one of the nurses said to me. You know, she's like, Cindy, it's an epidemic that we've been trying to get people to pay attention to. We've been, it's one in seven women, and the number is increasing in the cancer. And then the cost of cancer treatment <clears throat> is more than the housing market here in Seattle. I mean, it's off the ch- chart. So, did know, she say what was causing it? She said it's the air we breathe and the food we eat. And so, the and chemicals. I, the chemicals. Mm-hmm. When I see young women, Though, you know, one of my questions that was in my mind, and I have no basis for this except to ask, is it in, like, birth control pills or is it something horm- something for 30-year-olds to be sitting getting breast cancer? That's not normal. And they haven't lived long enough to in- inhale the air my 59-year-old self has been inhaling in. So something's up, like, and i think we just all wonder that i mean i tell my daughter-in-law all the time get in and get checked because you just don't know it's happening at such a rapid pace for women for young women
1: yeah and that's you know really good advice um but i think it's really it's hard to know exactly what's causing that i mean i think we all know that being exposed to chemicals is not a good thing um uh, and um, we also know that some people have uh, a dna propensity to some kinds of cancers. What triggers it, we don't know, but I do think there is a big um, correlation between environmental factors and your health, without a doubt. Um, you know, but getting back to the, to the question about um, the insurance companies, you know, I actually dropped a bill, it passed, but it forced them to pay for 3D mammograms. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to do that. Mm It was $50 more, Mm -hmm. but they didn't want to do that $50 more. Instead, they would have paid for a mastectomy on Mm -hmm. the back end Mm -hmm. and all the treatment that, you know, a woman would have to go through, um, or or even some men are getting breast cancer too. Um, It just seemed to me, I, I mean, I don't understand that kind of, you know, business sense. That, that doesn't make sense to me at all. It's like a 3D mammogram was much more accurate. Um, it had fewer false positives and, and, um, and was m- more often correct when it was positive. So it's like, it makes no sense to me why you wouldn't pay as an insurance company the extra $50. But we actually had to pass a law to do that. So, I would like to sit down with insurance companies after we go through, you know, and and like I said, they're different kinds. So, you don't just have the whole thing in the room at the same time, right? The whole industry. Um, And and really kind of go over some of these issues and what is the best way that we can address it. Um, You know, I, I like you. I don't begrudge anyone a profit, but when but when we're making decisions on whether someone like my daughter gets life saving care or not, so that you can save some some money and and have a bigger profit, I got a problem with that.
0: So you're planning on sitting in a room with a bunch of older men <laughs> to to talk about women's health care well, and maybe we- over Zoom. <laughs> over Zoom. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, um, I mean, look, I'm a face to face kind of person. I mean, that's 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 how I grew up in meetings and things like that. I'm not afraid of of doing that. Um, But I think it it helps to to hear people out to hear what they have to say. Like I said, you know, I'm open to suggestions as long as they're reasonable. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, And as long as it doesn't undermine the vision of where we need to go. Uh, I, I think that that's really important that we move in this direction of making sure that consumers have um, not only access to healthcare in particular, but that it is indeed affordable mm-hmm. um, for them. Because otherwise, you know, like I said, in, in our country right now, um, I've called it the Frankenstein healthcare model because of how we've carved out a program for Medicare. We've carved out a program for Medicaid. We have a program for Native Americans. We have those on private insurance. We have, then we have those who are completely uninsured. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then we have, you know, millions who are uninsured. Mm-hmm. And we have thousands of people who die every year from curable diseases like diabetes. Mm-hmm. In our country. And it seems to me that, you know, I don't understand this hesitation to invest in healthcare because it helps the economy. The economy's more robust when people are healthier and at work because then they're not homesick and are going into for treatment and things. And it just seems to me that this is it's it's a it's an idea whose time has, is you know has come. For sure, and really has been here, you know, I would have liked to seen the public option adopted with Obamacare. We didn't get it, but that doesn't mean that states can't be, you know, the, the legislative laboratories and we can't create our own. You know, Romney did it in Massachusetts, um, but I think there's even a better way of doing it with an interstate healthcare compact, including Oregon and California and potentially Alaska and Hawaii.
0: Are we in conversations or is that your plan? Well, I've
1: talked to them and, you know, and this again, you know, this goes back five years and I've talked to legislators from those states and they are interested. I think, you know, they're wrestling with the exact same things that we're wrestling with, especially with regard to health care, And I think if we came up with the right approach, the right structure, um, I think we could do this. And I think we could show that, um, You know, Canada is not the only place that can have
0: universal health (laughs) care. We're going to just take a quick um, commercial break, Senator, and then we'll be right back and pick this back up. We'll be right back. Basically, fam, believe in giving like we have to be willing to give more. And people seem to always think giving means money, but nah, bro. it's like you can give time. You can give understanding. You can give access. You can give a listening ear and an open heart. You can give and share your God-given gifts and talents, but you just got to give. What's up, everybody? You know, me and Besa, my girl, we had to pull up to Market Street shoes once again, y'all. And you know, we do this every season. We have to get the new shoes, the new boots, and this time I even got a coat. Yeah, no, you did walk in without a coat. I really did. I'm glad you found one. But (laughs) their boots were on point. Yes, the boots, the bags. I even grabbed a flannel. Yeah, you did. You know, and I was able to get some hats and everything. I was really impressed. And you know, I was impressed because, of course, I got those white boots that you guys see me wearing everywhere these days. Yeah, no, I I look at your white boots and I'm like, darn it, they only have one pair. Me and Basa wear the same size. Of course, every time we walk out with several bags in hand. Several bags and sometimes even a backpack, you guys. Make
1: sure you check out Market Street Shoes.
0: Yeah, please check them out. Where they go, Basa? Ooh, 2232 Northwest Market Street, Seattle, Washington. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. This evening joining uh, me is Senator Patty Cooter out of the 48th District, who has announced her candidacy for the Washington State Insurance Commissioner. It's been a fascinating and fast first half of the show listening to her vision and her view about her leadership in that position and what is possible for us. So this is pretty exciting that we are uh, potentially uh, removing the status quo of what has stayed in place and that we have somebody with a fresh vision and someone who can actually take a lot of action for uh, us on our behalf. Senator Cooter has done a lot. I have followed her closely over the last few years. So definitely an activist and someone in the legislature who is aiming to make things better for all of us here in Washington State. And we spent the first half of the show talking about, you know, affordability, Um, access those sorts of things. I want to go in the second part of this show. I want to talk a little bit uh, more deeply, Senator, about some of the other issues that are related to insurance, but they're interesting topics right now that the legislature is still talking about, which is the drug. Uh, epidemic in our communities, the fentanyl that is uh, widely distributed coming at a faster rate. And now we've got this Blake decision that the legislature is contending with. Now, I can't sit here and describe it to anybody intelligently. Maybe you can. Maybe you can talk to us about kind of what this all means from the insurance commissioner perspective, dealing with this crisis here in Seattle area.
1: Sure. So do you want me to explain the Blake decision? Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, um, the Blake decision was a a Washington State Supreme Court decision that essentially said that our um, law that um, said it was a felony to possess a small amount of drugs on your person was unconstitutional. And they held that it was unconstitutional because there was no element of intent and that is fundamental to most crimes, and notable exception would be a DUI. Um, but otherwise you typically need to have intent for there to be a crime. It, it was the right decision, but it came at a very difficult time because it was right smack dab in the middle of a session, and there had been no previous work on um, on addressing that because we were waiting for the Supreme Court decision, which we thought was going to come out at the end. Um, so what we ended up doing uh, is passing a temporary fix for two years that made it a misdemeanor but gave you three diversions to start. Um, that, um, did not work. And so we, but we took those two years and we started working on what could be a possible solution to this very complicated issue. Um, because drug addiction, uh, anyone who's known anyone, uh, who's suffered from, uh, substance use disorder knows that it's not a linear path out and everybody has their own journey. Uh, and it is a really challenging issue all the way around. Um, And so the issue right now, we're being called back into special session in the middle of May. uh, And I'm hoping that we will come to a compromise agreement on what the solution is going to be on how to handle uh, people who are um, caught with a small amount of drugs on their person or openly using in public. Uh, At this point, the debate is we we know we would like to have a statewide standard. Um, I think that that it makes the most sense. Whether it's a misdemeanor or gross misdemeanor is part of the debate. Um, and uh, obviously, that the criminal piece of it is really, to me, um, secondary to what's really paramount, and that is the amount of money and resources that will be going into um, drug addiction treatment and substance use disorder treatment. And I think that that is really, really critical. We are simply not set up at this point structurally um, with the beds, with the mental health counselors, with the drug addiction specialists, et cetera, we don't have the numbers to to service the need. Um, to, to go straight to decriminalization. And that's why that is not going to pass. I do not see that there being a path forward for that in our state at this moment. Doesn't mean it can't happen at some point in the future. And certainly the, the data and the evidence, um, suggests that that is the direction we should be going. Um, but my hope is that with, with the, um, amount of resources that are included in, in this compromise, that that will, uh, be, what will really um, motivate people to support um, a compromised solution so that we do get help to people and get help to them sooner than later. I view it as a medical condition uh, when, when you're um, suffering from substance use disorder, but not everybody who has uh, drugs on them is a drug addict. And I think we need to be mindful of that and how we do assessments, et cetera. So it isn't an easy issue. I'm going to be very frank with you. Um, and um, and I'll, I'm going to have to wait to see what they come up with before I can make a decision one way or the other. If it's, if it's too harsh, I'm probably going to be a no. Um, but in terms of when you talk about insurance and how does that play into it, Well, we had an entire county, Grays Harbor County, that was completely without access to health care insurance. They pulled out because of the opioid epidemic and the amount of treatment that was happening in that county. Now, the insurance commissioner, to his credit, convinced them to go back in, but then we also passed Cascade Care, which allowed us to go back in. So we at least have two options, a public option and a private option in every county in the state. Um, but I but you can see with private insurance why that's dangerous when you have that ability to just pull out of a county when there's that kind of need. You don't want to pay the claims anymore. And again, it's the for-profit versus the nonprofit. And is the money going to invest into people's health and their health care, or is it going to go into the pockets?
0: And so is what you, When I paraphrase back, because I'm always in my C-spot run uh, version of interpretation on what you're saying, is the bottom line that the decision has to be made, whether this is a misdemeanor or a gross misdemeanor, and doesn't the impact of that decision impact the brown and black communities more
1: yeah, I think it does, which is yeah. why I was supportive of a misdemeanor um, mm-hmm. approach, and um, of course with the diversion um, as well, and and having prosecutors uh, divert, um, uh, especially first time, uh, you know, first time um, offenders into uh, a drug treatment program. Um, you know, this is um, uh, this has been an issue that affects every corner of the state, but it's interesting to listen to the local governments and they have different approaches to it. When I spoke to mine, the bottom line came down to each one of them, and I'm talking about the mayors and and the uh, chiefs of police, is they really feel it's important to have a statewide standard. Um, The problem with the gross misdemeanor for me is that ironically, it actually is um, more harmful than the original felony, and the reason for that is that there were sentencing guidelines on a felony in these situations, right, that called for less time in jail than if it's a gross misdemeanor, mm-hmm. that's why. And when, and when you have a felony, you're in superior court, they see felonies that are way worse than that. So the odds of them wanting to put you into a, a jail cell are really, really low. But when you're in district court, municipal court, where the the King offense is a gross misdemeanor, that's a different story. Now in King County, I don't see it ever happening that they're going to instantly put someone uh, into jail for that. But I don't know about outstate. Mm
0: -hmm. Isn't there also a drug, uh, the name of it escapes me at the moment, but a drug that's being used when somebody has overdosed and they're giving it to Naloxone. Yes. What can you say about that? Because again, I'm thinking about insurance and um well, I think for
1: one thing that should be covered. It should be in every school. And I mean, uh, you know, is it currently, I think some schools do have it. I think it's important for um, you know, almost every place to have it because of the widespread use uh, of Of um, fentanyl, and it 's really scary uh, again. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about this you know the problem that I see with with the American way the American approach to to problems is we 're always addressing it when they happen. Mm -hmm. We're not really looking at how do we prevent that from happening in the first place or why aren't we putting a lot more effort into prevention up front. So the interdiction, the drug interdiction that we talked about, I mean, and that's not just our state. The federal government has to really step up here and work with governments in other countries to stop the flow of illegal drugs into our country. But you also have to think about why people are using, Mm -hmm. you know, and and there are many, many different reasons for that. But I think if we had, you know, invest, if we invest more in our health care, being preventative and care and proactive in our food and other things that just make sense, um, education and housing, I think you would see a decrease in
0: the motivation to start in the first place. And so... I don't want to put words in your mouth so you are correlating lack of having access to housing people living in streets lack of having access to education as you know feeder points into drug use or how would you like why is it increasing at such a rapid rate you can see it out here in Seattle how you know in one week's time you got more people like we're literally stepping over the top of other pe- people laying in the streets it's gotten bad and I know it's not just here i my son was just talking about being in LA last week and how it had gone way up from when he lived down there a few years ago so the rate of it is going off the roof? And what, what are we correlating the usage to? Like, why are so many people using like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I can answer that question. Um, all I can say is that there's a deep um, need in our country to invest in its people, and we haven't been doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when people, um, you know, have hope, and have um, you know a reason to, to to get a job they got a family they got an education they're you know they have healthcare they don't have to worry about those things I think there's less you're you're busy living life at that point there's less looking wherever or you know getting getting involved with, with drugs. I can't answer that. I know there's experimentation that mm-hmm. goes on in high school of course um, and that's a different issue altogether. Um, uh, we, we debated that as well, the legend drugs, you know, the Oxycontin versus the illegal drugs on the street. And the fact that they were actually in the compromise, the legend drugs were going to be a misdemeanor. Um, and the drugs on the street were going to be a gross misdemeanor, which meant those with brown and black faces on the street were more likely to get a gross misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, People who look like me who are taking mom's OxyContin and going in the basement would not, mm-hmm. would have a misdemeanor. And, and I found that that was not, I, you know, that, that I'm a discrimination attorney, so mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that to me just felt really um, offensive. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't able to support that bill that, that came out of the Senate. In fact, 15 Democrats voted against that bill out of the Senate. Uh, and, of course, the House sent over a misdemeanor version. Ours was the gross misdemeanor. Um, And, you know, and the compromise was a a misdemeanor and gross misdemeanor in the way I
0: described Mm -hmm. it. And that didn't make it out of the house. Mm -hmm. So and and we don't have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, we don't have here in Washington state, like we don't have adequate drug treatment centers around. No, we don't. We,
1: I told you we, we are missing that. That's the infrastructure piece that we need to be building. You know, we're going to be flying the plane uh, a, a, as we're building it. And it's, we ne- that's why the resources that are in this compromise. And that's the one thing that I think everyone is really holding on to in terms of what the final result is going to be, because that's really, really critical. Mm -hmm. to us really starting to make a dent into this very serious crisis and helping people. I mean, at at the core, that's what this policy should be designed to do, Mm -hmm. is to help people who are in desperate need.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you believe um, that we'll be able to get, um, when you uh, are elected, into the seat that we'll be able to start focusing more on, I mean, you won't be in the Senate anymore, I guess is what my head was, um, so how do we continue the momentum uh, to try to help resolve problems for people as opposed to labeling them as problematic people and just letting them, you know, die in the street? And and then let's just play it out once they, if they have treatment, um, you know, I've happened to have some of this in my family <laughs> where... Um, You can stay clean, but then you come back and you've got to go back into a society that you can't afford to pay rent. You can't afford, you don't make enough money. Um, You know, it's that vicious circle of poverty and lack of access. And how do we get people to be able to, how do we change this entire ecosystem so that people don't fall back into it when we get them out of it or a, a portion of them out of it? you mean I'm, that they don't relapse I mean yeah I mean it's it's a it's a difficult
1: I mean if yeah anybody- there's no guarantee um, and and you know to be frank we're not going to save everyone
0: mm-hmm. I
1: mean that's uh, I've had that in my own family we're not going to save everyone mm-hmm. we know that um, but we are going to if, if we follow the research and follow the data and our policy aligns with that we are more we are more likely to save way more people than if we let emotion drive whatever comes out of the legislature. I I just, you know, the more that I see emotions getting whipped up about this issue, the more I back off and look at the research and the data. And as I told you earlier, there is no correlation between harsh punishments and uh, someone recovering from substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not connected because it doesn't work. Okay, in, say that louder for the people in the back. There's no correlation between harsher punishments mm-hmm. and and helping someone recover from drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no correlation there. In fact, sometimes it's actually contraindicated because, for example, with opioid um, people who who are addicted to opioids. Uh, They will be in in jail, let's say, for a year. Let's say it's gross misdemeanor. Sure, they're dried out. They're not using, right? But their tolerance level has gone down. They come out. They're not really cured, if you will. They're not recovered because this wasn't something they chose, and they weren't ready for it. They've got stressors again because now they've been in jail for a year, so they lost their job. They lost their house, right? And um, so they go back to using, but their tolerance level is much lower, but they take the same dose they did before mm-hmm. they went in and they overdose and die. Mm-hmm. And there's evidence to that. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that I wanna be smart about this um, because if we allow our emotions to take hold and think that we need to punish everybody for every um, you know, choice they make that is not healthy for them, We're just going to make matters worse. We're not helping anything, and it's very, very costly to do that. It's not like the taxpayers aren't paying for that. Mm -hmm. They are, and I would rather my tax dollars go to something that works, but we do need to build the infrastructure, and that's why, like I said, there's um, millions and millions of dollars put into this bill to to help start us in that direction. It's going to take more. We're going to have to do more, and that also includes things like creating more curricula programs around the state so we get more mental health counselors in there. That also means we raise the Medicaid rate because a lot of mental health counselors are paid by Medicaid and they don't make enough mm. to pay the bills so they don't, you know, mm-hmm. they, they choose another profession. Mm-hmm. We have to make this a profession that people want to go into. What's well, a good
0: point you just brought up because I did want to ask you about the rate of coverages, right? That's what you're talking about with, you know, m- many of our Healthcare providers, so I'm going to talk mental health for a moment. Um, many um, doctors and health professionals are choosing cash pay mm-hmm. only options for people which still has this disproportionate impact on brown and black communities and their rates are not cheap. And you go in to see a mental health person, it's $200 cash out of your pocket. People can't afford it. And so, what do we do about the reimbursement rates? And, or, you know, providers are just walking away because the bureaucracy inside of insurance companies, you can't navigate it. And first off, you can't get a live person. Um, what do we, what's the thought about that? What do you think? Well, that's why there's the consumer advocacy
1: position in the insurance commissioner's office. If there's a complaint about not being able to work with your insurance company, call the insurance commissioner's office. I think, you know, if, if it's something that that is within our jurisdiction to assist with, I'm already saying our jurisdiction, but mm-hmm. their jurisdiction, they will do it. Um Uh, but I think that that's one thing for people who feel like they're not being treated fairly by their insurance company to to think about doing it. It's not a natural thought because, like I said, it's not an office that pops into your head right away. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of the rates, I mean, we do need to raise the Medicaid rate. Um, There's been legislation proposed to do that. I have supported it. The problem is, and when I say the problem is, I mean the problem is, Our tax
0: structure.
1: Mm. All roads roads lead back to our tax structure, which is rated the worst in the country for a very good reason, because it is. And that means that people on the lowest end of the wealth spectrum pay a lot more of their money in taxes than those at the upper end. And um, we need to right the ship when it comes to our tax structure. Remember, I mean, it was created a little while ago, you know, in 1889. Uh, Maybe it's time (laughs) for a refresher, I'm thinking. Uh, And I know what I would do right out of the gate is I would jettison that uniformity clause, which which is the clause in the Constitution that says all property has to be taxed at a uniform rate. That means your house is taxed at the exact same rate as the Amazon sphere building downtown or the arenas. Right? Mm-hmm. And this makes no sense. And why can't we get this
0: passed? I know you've taken that, this issue on. I have actually yeah. dropped a bill to do that.
1: <laughs> and it also, but the bill wasn't just to get rid of the uniformity clause. It was also to give people a homestead exemption and a renter's credit. Um, but the reason is, quite frankly, it requires us to amend the Constitution. Um, that requires two-thirds a vote in each chamber, and then it requires a referendum to the people of the state uh, to support it. Um, I think that um, if enough people contacted their legislators and told them that they want us to right the ship so that we have more money for mental health and for um mental health counselors and for drug addiction uh, therapy treatment centers. Uh, I think we could do this. I really do. Um, And. But it's
0: going to take a lot of work. And if we can get, you know, for the two-thirds majority, if we can get more people who have common sense thinking, like what you're describing, into positions of power in the legislature where we take the two-thirds power away from the people who are blocking it, which is why you see people like me on here all the time talking about trying to get people elected and trying to help support that, because we can't do it, we can't pass it when the majority doesn't want us to have it pass. And if we here in Washington State can't do it, this is a uh, much more there's a lot more activity progressive activity here than many of the states across the country so we got to set that but we got to get that passed here we need more people and filing deadline is next week correct for that's for uh, local, local offices local offices, yeah. offices yeah. yeah statewide state, state and, is next and legislature okay. will be next, next year, year yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay uh, senator in just the last few minutes here i wanted to give you an opportunity you've done a lot in your you've been in office since 2016 Uh, September of 2015. 2015. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us your proudest moments as a senator and some of the things that you've done and achieved there um, as a senator here?
1: Thank you. Um, I'd have to go by um, uh, committee and category. So, for example, um, in housing, which I chair, um, I'm very proud of the fact that um, uh, we passed my bills to... Um, update and revise and put protections in place for renters in the Residential Landlord Tenant Act and also to be the first state in the country to guarantee a right to a lawyer in an eviction. I'm very, very proud of that. And um, there was just an article uh, in the in the Seattle Times that talked about how evictions are way down. And I think that the, the protections we put in place and that law had something to do with it. For law and justice, which I'm a member of, I would say, um, for me, the, the crowning glory would be the assault weapons ban that we just passed and signed into law. Um, uh, I worked, uh, hand in hand with Strom Peterson. He's the prime, uh, sponsor of the House bill that we passed. I had the Senate companion. Um, and it's just, it was such a common sense bill, but it was so long overdue. And, um, you know, the the idea that we need to, ha- to have military style weapons as civilians is really hard for me to, to even think about and to, and to even think even more that they would be on the streets and open carry. Um, and we did pass my bill to end open carry as well. Um, I think for elections in state government and elections, uh, I had the bill that finally, you know, Put an end to advisory votes, and um, you know you might remember those were the Tim Eyman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it was uh, I termed them waste, fraud, and abuse <laughs> <laughs> because they were, um, and uh, the way that they use loaded language, and they were intended, they were designed and intended to influence public opinion, not to measure it. And essentially, what they were was um, they were taxpayer funded. Um, anti-tax propaganda on our ballots—they are gone. They are relegated to the dustbin of history. Uh, I am exceptionally happy about that, and it will save the, the um, taxpayers millions of dollars not having those on our ballots. So I think there's there's probably more if you let me think about it, but <laughs> those would be my top three.
0: Awesome. Well, Senator, thank you so much for coming on uh, this evening and talking with me and talking with our community about the work that you have done, accomplished, and more importantly, about this race that you've stepped into on behalf of the citizens here in Washington State to help us get affordable health insurance and access to um, health insurance and for helping to address Uh, health equity issues that we have in our communities. And so to our audience who joined us tonight, thank you for listening in and joining this conversation. Please pay attention to this uh, campaign. It's May. This election is uh, November. Is that right? senator
1: uh the election will be in november of 2024 of 2020 a little early.
0: she's 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 a year out <laughs> in front which is uh senator cooter's style is to be in front of issues so please pay attention we'll be monitoring that thank you all for joining us this evening and we look forward to seeing you next week have a good evening thank you black assuming for everybody black yeah. uh-huh yeah so-